You're listening to Zero to IPO. I'm Joshua Davis, the co-founder of Epic Magazine. And I'm Frederick Harris, Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Okta. As you know, we're dealing with a global pandemic, and we're excited to bring you more episodes of Zero to IPO, but we had to figure out how to record in isolation. So if it sounds like we're all in different rooms, it's because we are. Now let's get on with our show. Well, today we have Teen Zo on the show, and Teen is the CEO of Zora, and amongst many accomplishments, is one of the most noted people on the idea of the subscription economy. Zora is the leading way for companies to launch and manage subscription services. He is a noted expert on this, but he's also the 11th employee at Salesforce going way back. Wait, wait, wait. Before you do that, I mean, he's the best-selling author on the subscription economy. Let's be really clear about that. Yep. 100%. Totally clear. One of my first thoughts, I was like, wait a second. Teen, you're the 11th employee at Salesforce. You're the first CMO at Salesforce. Why aren't you on a beach somewhere? Why are you even working Why anymore, you man? Even What's working? wrong with you? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Why are you on our podcast? There's a lot more to do. There's a lot more to do. There's a lot more technology to build. And uh, there's a lot more things that we want to do in the world. So we're busy. We're going to get into all that. We want to pick your brain. We want to learn as much as we can from you. So let me introduce our other guest. Jeremy Bloom is our first Olympian on the show, Freddie. And as if that wasn't enough, has also played in the NFL, was drafted initially by the Eagles and then played uh, for the Steelers as well. Most notably, you're the CEO and founder of Integrate, which is a company that helps other companies automate demand marketing. And for our listeners today, we're going to be talking about a stage of growth, about a set of problems and challenges that occur not in the early days, because Jeremy and Integrate are beyond the early days. They've raised a significant amount of capital. And so I think the question on the table is, how do you grow at a high cadence after you've made it through the initial stages of raising money? It's been a journey. We're somewhat described as an overnight success 10 years later. Uh, it's taken us a while to, to get where, where we are. A phase of the company, we're about 300 people. Our mission is, is to move everything into a central database in the cloud so that we can make more informed decisions on where we should be spending our marketing dollars to create revenue. Let's get into the meat here. So in the last 24 months, Integrate has tripled in size. As we all know, we are in a moment of real turmoil and market instability. Teen, you were at Salesforce in 08. You're leading Zora through the current turmoil. What kind of lessons can we gain? How aggressive or defensive should we be in moments of market instability? Azora, we actually started at the end of 2007. And so we lived through the 2008 crisis where, you know, the prevailing wisdom was there was never going to be any cash. Were you like, oh, it's over, it's over? Or were you, what was your mindset? Well, uh, we didn't plan to start the company in a giant recession. The economy started to look really, really good. And uh, we, we got a little lucky, right? A little luck always helps along the way. We closed our Series B in the summer of 08. And I think we had signed the term sheet. Um, and then Lehman Brothers collapsed and the economy started shutting down. We were a little worried for a while that we actually wouldn't get the cash. I don't think we cut anybody, but we were really smart about saying, you know, how can we use the resources we have? How can we use the people we have? And then just focus. Uh, focus really on customers that really needed what we were doing. Focus really on, on, on making sure we serviced them well making sure that we, you know, we were spending 
uh, our our R and D on, on the most valuable things, and and we just continue to acquire customers, you know, prove ourselves, uh, be smart about our cash, um, which is kind of nice actually, right? And all the times when when things are actually going crazy around you, especially as a tech company, there's such a big push to hire and to grow. And so moments like these where that pressure is off right now really allows you to kind of reflect and build, you know, build quality systems, right? And, and, and build a foundation for how you want to operate that last years and years and years. Jeremy, a question for you. In your mind right now, are you thinking uh, offensively or defensively? Yeah, we're, we're really thinking offensively. We're, we're grateful to serve the enterprise, right? So when you look at our customer base, it's Salesforce, it's Microsoft. These are big companies, right? So they're going to make it through. We're well capitalized to be able to make some R&D bets through this downturn. We're also able to continue marketing and maybe even marketing um, even harder, but differently. So I think a lot of reinvention is going to happen, um, re-architecting is going to happen. It's pretty staggering, you know, the amount of innovation and change that's happening right now. And sometimes we can't see it. When you were skiing for, as I understand it, you had kind of structured your whole skiing career around the idea of winning an Olympic medal. That was your goal. And you actually that's made a pretty it good the, goal. Josh, I just want to say that's pretty good goal. It's <laughs> a pretty, pretty good goal. I just, and, just want to be clear. And, and Freddie, Freddie will never make it anywhere near the Olympics. So Why you got to be like that? That's not cool. Not cool. Uh, you know, so he's never going to realize that dream. But you had the chance. You had worked your ass off for years and years and years to get onto the top of that run to make it to the podium to get a medal. And uh, things I don't think quite worked out. And so as we talk about crisis leadership and like, how do you adapt to things not going the way you went? Like, how did that play out for you in your own life? I came into both Olympics as the number one ranked skier in the world and made very small mistakes and very small mistakes in my sport, which by the way, is 22 seconds. So you work your entire life for 22 seconds. And if your knees break an inch, you're off the podium. And so in Torino, when I didn't win an Olympic gold medal, and I knew that at that point my ski career was over, it was, it was a hard pill to swallow. But what it forced me to do is, is uh, understand how to use these moments in our, in our lives, these inevitable moments in our lives, um, to learn. And in your case, after the Olympics, you left Italy in a matter of days and just kind of put it behind you. Well, what I did is I said, I'm going to take 48 hours. I came up with this rule that in Torino, it was a 48-hour rule for me. And I'm like, I'm going to feel bad for myself for 48 hours. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. I'm going to feel bad for myself. I'm going to cry, whatever it, whatever it was. But then prescriptively, I'm like, after that window, I'm moving on 1,000 miles an hour ahead. And I'm taking the lessons that I learned, and I'm moving. And yeah, I woke up the next, next morning. I flew to Indianapolis for the 2006 NFL Combine. And met 32 NFL teams, and then a month later, I was with the Eagles, and so I was on to the next thing, and 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 trying to you know trying to build a, a career in the NFL and learn the ropes and get to know the people and have have fun and, and and enjoy the ride. Well, there is something to that. I mean, when I when I listen to that, I mean, Freddie, if you think about you know all the times that people think building these companies are, it's a straight line, but but you know we almost failed a bunch of times at Salesforce. Right. I'm sure uh, you faced down failure in, in, in Okta multiple times. And so it sure sounds like, you know, that experience 
you couldn't ask for better preparation to do what we do, which is to, to, to try to build these, these, these startup technology companies where there are times where you just feel like you're lurching from, from crisis to crisis, uh, but you pick yourself up and, and you have to show some resilience and, and you power through. Jeremy, you drew a great contrast, I think, between skiing and football, right, and the two different football teams that you were on. It felt like football is much, much more of a teaming sport, and, and there was a number of lessons that you learned from that. Yeah, tell us about that. You've talked about that in the past. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, and I didn't know it at the time, right, because I didn't know about organizational design or, or leadership as it relates to team dynamics as in the sense that I do now, but when I reflect, um, it's super clear. When I was drafted the Philadelphia Eagles, that was a very top-down run management team. And it was um, fear-based leadership. So we would often hear in, the, in, in team meetings, hey, if you don't do X, Y, or Z, you're out of here. There's a hundred guys that want to replace you. And I don't think it was out of ill intent. I just think it was like their philosophy, right? And it was just really weird. It led to this really weird team dynamic. Because in the locker room, everybody was looking out for their own job. Like, they're on their little islands. Like, they're about themselves. They put me first. They're worried about getting fired. And so you didn't feel like you could really lock arms. And, and uh, then I went to the Pittsburgh Steelers, totally different organization. The Roonies have owned the team forever. Mike Tomlin is a transformational leader, probably the best leader I've ever been around. And, and the team set the goals. The, the team set what we would describe as OKRs. Uh, you know, and, and it was Heinz Ward. It was Troy Palomalu. It was Ben Roethlisberger. It was, you felt like it was a family. And everybody knows in the NFL that NFL stands for not for long because the average tenure is like two years. Like, everybody gets that. It's competitive. But, but there was this camaraderie, this, this uh, uh, family feel to it. And that year, the, the Steelers won the Super Bowl with what I would describe as a less talented team than what we had in, in Philadelphia. So that really stood out to me. The other thing that stand, stood out to me, and this was a steep learning curve for me, I'm used to being around you know, football players and Olympians, and I would relate them to our sales team. They have the same mentality, the go get a mentality. You can throw a big idea on a whiteboard and they're gonna go charge it, right? And so that's how I initially led the company. And I tell you what, I got half the room super excited and the other half of the room scared to death. All my engineers, engineers. hated me. They're like, <laughs> what is this big? I don't know how to get there. One plus one doesn't equal two. I, and, and so I had, to, I had to really learn how to, how to that, that everybody likes to ingest information in different ways. And I actually went and got certified for Myers-Briggs because of that principal problem. I couldn't figure out how to motivate or talk to or be effective with uh, primarily the engineers. And that's been a steep learning curve for me. Haven't nailed it yet. Think that I'm getting better, but would love some insight from, from you guys on that topic. Hey, Tina, I, I want to go back actually to something that you commented on, and I'm wondering if you can expand on it, which is Jeremy was describing how he was giving his amped up leadership talk and half of the crowd didn't respond. You guessed that it was the engineers. Yeah, you, you do have to recognize they're, 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 they're very, very different. I mean, salespeople uh, are, are tend to be about the win. Uh, the engineers get their energy from, I mean, obviously they want to win too, right? You, you see highly, highly competitive engineering, but they want to create something 
right? They're more motivated in, in, in the realm of ideas and, and creation. And they want a, a, a logical structure to help them decide what it is they need to do. Uh, the value that you provide to the engineer ultimately is, is how to help them think through the world, right? And so they're looking for, okay, help me break down the world. Help me understand why, you know, we're investing the investing in the areas. What do the customers really, really want? What are the competitors really doing, right? And they want to really understand that so they could map that back to, you know, this is why I'm building this feature. This is why I'm building this code. And if I deliver these features, then I'm going to have a world-class product that's being used by, you know, thousands if not millions of people, right? This is how I create a product that's meaningful in the world. And that's really where they're getting their motivation from. And if you're in the field, right, and, and you know what the customers want, that is the value that you bring into that conversation, right? And so, so if, if I was a, a sales-oriented leader sitting down with the engineers, I would grab a bunch of them. They love the energy, by the way, right? You know, they, 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 they like that positivity. Uh, I would just grab lunch with them and say, hey, here's kind of what the customers are seeing. What are you working on, right? Let me try to relate it back to how the customers will experience it, right? Let them be able to see how their products and technologies are being used in the world and why it's important. Because at the end of the day, what engineers really, really want is they want to know that what they are working on is important. And it is. I think that's an interesting and good point to highlight, which is if you are more of a sales-oriented leader, a key role that you can play is to bring the outside world to the engineers and be a window for them outside of their immediate creation. That's right. We're, we're, you know, we, we spend all our hours sitting here, you know, building this product, writing this code. Tell us what happens to it when it gets out in the wild. I want to segue into another topic here, which is that Jeremy and Integrate have bought two different companies, uh, one of which is in London. And so Integrate is now in the process of expanding overseas. Zora, Okta have some experience with this. And so I, I kind of want to ask you, Jeremy, what are some of the growing pains that you feel with international expansion? And let's hear from Freddie and Teen about how we might be able to address those issues. We looked uh, in several years, how, how, what's the best way to expand internationally with, with your first step? And there's three ways to do it. You, you either hire an MD over there and you build around that, so in, uh, managing director, um, or you bring somebody from your home office that is a good culture keeper that can build and you build around them, or you acquire something. And we found um, a company that we really liked, a product that we loved, that fit inside of our, our demand cloud, demand marketing cloud, that we knew we needed to build it. At some point, we, we just, it would have taken years to build. And there was about a 40 person team. And I think I under indexed like, oh, it, you know, the, the cultural integration part of it. Because I'm thinking UK, it's English speaking. I looked at their, their cultural pillars. I'm like, yes, they align with ours. I spent a ton of time with their founder, um, who, who's a, who, a wonderful executive. And, and, I'm, and we were both like two thumbs up, like this cultural integration is going to be simple. And it wasn't. And I thought that, you know, if it, you know the, for the folks that, that wouldn't be part of the journey, you know, maybe they would um, leave within the first couple of weeks. But it, it really took us like eight months nine months to really turn the corner and find out who wanted to be part of this journey and and who didn't. So I would love some insight. What would be helpful from Tina or Freddie, the next area that we're, um, you know, expanding in, either through acquisition or hiring, is um, APJ. 
And I would love to hear how, you know, any... APJ being Asia Pacific Japan. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Uh, yeah. So the Asian region. And so would love to hear any insight as it relates to what you guys have learned as you've expanded your businesses into Asia. We, we expanded internationally pretty quickly. We started European operations uh, starting in London, but moving into, into, into France here. Uh, and then we expanded to Japan and Australia. And um, I probably modeled it after Salesforce. Salesforce went into Japan really, really quickly within the first year. And I, I, I'd say, I'd say there's, there's definitely regional differences, right? How you establish trust on a day-to-day basis winds up being very, very cultural. And, um, and you have to be able to, to, to connect. And so if you're going to go into APAC, uh, you will probably personally have to commit to, to, to being out there. A little hard right now, right, with, with, with all the travel lockdowns, and it's something that we have to figure out. Um, but that's really, really important. But once you transcend that, what you realize is, at the end of the day, you know, people are people, right? And, and once you have that, 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 that trust established, then, um, then it's really just a matter of getting down to the micro, right? What part of our, our, our process, whether it's how we find customers, how we connect with the customers, Right, how we communicate to the customers, how do we translate that so that it all it all works on a local level, right? And 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 so having constant dialogue is really really important. The hard part is really you know people carry around these assumptions that they don't realize, right? And this just happens to us all the time. And so in, in in your UK company, it all looks good, but it turns out that you have to unpack the assumptions that they have because when they have the assumptions in terms of look, I expect to have. Um, um, these sales tools when I sell. I expect to have this freedom in terms of decision-making. And it didn't, it conflicted, and you didn't realize this, right, with, with your culture. And they don't really realize that it's a conflict. And they just know that there's, there's, there's a lot of friction in how they work. And the danger is they lead to a conclusion that, oh, we're not a good fit, right? We're, we're not a cultural fit. Or, or headquarters doesn't really care about us. And you've got to sort of unpack all those things and get at the root of what, what the hidden assumptions are. And then you can align folks, right, to, to, to a new collaborative path uh, forward. And Tien, you're saying it's not necessarily that it's not a cultural fit. It may be something as simple as we thought we were going to have these sales tools and we don't. It's, it's usually that. It's usually that. There's a foundation of trust that you have to build. Right. And then beyond that, it's, it's usually something in the friction and people leap to a conclusion that, oh, you know, we're just not that important to headquarters, right? Or we're just very, we're just too different. Well, and then if headquarters doesn't actually respond, then it proves the assumption. It starts to reinforce it. That's exactly right. Freddie? There's a couple things, to Teen's point, cultures are very different. I mean, just Europe alone is 27 different countries, languages, and so forth. For example, in America, uh, at our headquarters and our other big offices, Chicago, Washington, D.C., um, it's a, employees really like to have lunch brought in. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we bring in lunch. It's an opportunity for everyone to sit together. Engineers can sit and talk to salespeople like Teen said, all the other cross-pollination. Well, actually, we brought that to France and we said, hey, we're very excited. We're bringing you the same thing. And the French are like, we don't like that. We're like, what do you mean you don't like the lunch? They're like, no, no, no. Part of being in France is I'm going out to lunch. I'm having a glass of wine. It's an event. It's part of the day. So like those cultural things, if you've got an American just being like, damn it, Paris office, you're going to eat lunch in the office. The Parisians are like, this is terrible. And then finally, the last thing I would say is you just have to emphasize and repeat over and over and over what Teen said, 
which is um, I actually tell people all the times at all hands, if you get two phone calls or two emails or text message or Slack or whatever from two people, and one of them is maybe in the next time zone over or maybe another local Northern, North America office, and the other one's from Australia or from Munich or from uh, Japan, answer that second one first. Because the first person is going to know how to get stuff done. Answer, the, answer the, the, key, the communication from the furthest geography that you can. Prioritize that and show everyone that's kind of the way that they should approach life. Did I hear you, you just made a mistake in, in the French office? I wasn't paying attention that day. And someone decided that that was the policy. And as a Frenchman, I stepped in and said, no, no, no. They want to go out. They want to drink the wine. They want to smoke the cigarettes. And everyone said, okay, that makes more sense. We got rid of that policy. That's really good, good stuff. I appreciate it, guys. Um, and, and, and Freddie, I'd never heard the advice of getting back to the person at the furthest time zone first. That resonates. That makes a lot of sense because those are the people that maybe don't know but also feel most disconnected, right? Yeah. And actually, like, tactically, if you think about it tactically, like, imagine you're a salesperson in Europe and you're, you send a question and that question doesn't get answered right away. You wake up in the morning. It's now midnight on the, in, in North America. You have to wait all day till 5 p.m., the end of your business day, for America to wake up. You waste like literally 24, 48-hour cycles just waiting for like feedback. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. And, you know, we do have some pretty good balance at Integrate because we do have physical offices. I mean, we have an office in London for 40 people. We have an office, uh, our headquarters in Phoenix, Arizona. So we have about 100 people there. But if we find great talent in another state where we don't have physical office, great. Let's let's bring bring them on board. Teen, you mentioned that at Salesforce, you, you guys went to Tokyo first and at Zora, you went to Tokyo first. I'm interested in, you know, if, if you were maybe at your next startup and you're thinking about expanding into Asia and you could pick one city to do it, at least in the beginning, maybe the city with the least amount of red tape or friction um, or country, or you think about, you know, Australia and Sydney, you think about Singapore, which is an expat kind of community. You think about Tokyo, which has its own set of cultural challenges, maybe China. I know you guys have some uh, employees in China. How would you think about prioritizing or dissecting those four locations? And, and which ultimately would you choose to open your first office in? I think the first cut of the world is actually not geography. It's actually language, the language that you interact with the Internet. And so Australia and New Zealand are going to operate a lot more like the U.S. and the U.K. than anything else. So I know they're physically over there. The time zone is, is, is definitely that. But it's going to be a lot easier for you to go to Australia and New Zealand. Now, the market's only so big. Right, Australia, I think, is 30 million people. Right, the U.S. is 300 million, um, but it's it's a low hanging fruit for 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 a startup. Beyond that, you really have to look at uh, the industries that you're pursuing, and if you truly have a horizontal product and, and you're agnostic to it, then there's something about Japan as just being a more mature place, a big market, and uh, because of Salesforce, their adoption of SaaS is fairly good. Now, there's definitely a lot of you know cultural nuances there. It's the one place in the world where there's still a tower records. They still buy CDs, right, as an example. Uh, and so you have to be sensitive to some of the local aspects to it. The other thing about Japan is, is if you look at a European countries, it is much easier to hit the countries where, where they have one big uh, city, right? So the UK, it's London, and the France is Paris. If you go to Germany, there's like four big cities. Uh, the nice thing about Japan is it's one big city. If you go to China, it's a lot of cities, Right. And, and Singapore is, 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 is as a market is small. So Singapore is really a launching point 
before you get to all these other places. And so now you're talking about a lot of different cities. And so the investment required to get things going is just, is just simply higher. That being said, Japan, you know, is in many ways more on a, on a metaphorical island, right? Not a physical, obviously it's an island too. Um, and so you do have to invest a lot more in, in, in a local infrastructure and you have to invest in a team that's used to dealing with, with, with U.S. companies. And so there is a little bit of a higher bar there. So those are all the calculus that you have, right? As a SaaS company, we just figured, you know, Salesforce is dominant enough there where, where they've taught the whole country the importance of SaaS and it was easier just to follow that. I feel like if we're going to talk about international expansion, we got to say a little bit about China. Teen or Freddie, what it, when you look at expanding there, how do you deal with that? Teen, didn't you have part of your original engineering organization was there, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we, we, uh, we have a big engineering site in China, an R&D site. Um, China is just a unique market. And so it's, uh, it's not, it's, it's the rules of other places are going to be different. And China will favor local incumbents. And so you just got to know that, right? You got to know that going into it. And, um, and there has not been a huge explosion of SaaS companies. I mean, you, you, there's definitely signs, right? But you, you can see there's a Chinese version of Twitter. There's a Chinese version of LinkedIn. There's a Chinese version of Amazon. You don't really see the Chinese version of Salesforce. There's certainly lots of small companies that, that are SaaS companies, but, but it hasn't been the same, same dimension. Listening to what uh, you said, Tina, about how you, you analyze all four of those cities, and it makes me, th- makes me think, like, well, you know, what are you going there for? What's the top priority, right? You know, for us, the top priority is customer success in the time zone. So, yes, it's about growth. Um, yes, it's about new bookings and revenue. But when you look at our customer base, our 250 customers, a lot of them were, are doing activity in, in, in Asia today. I think that's why we're gravitating towards Singapore, because it's an expat community. It's kind of centrally located. It's, you know, you can get to Australia relatively easy. You can get to Japan relatively easy. But, but it made me think, like, if our only goal was new bookings or expansion or revenue growth, that the addressable market in Japan is much, much higher than it is in Australia and certainly much, much higher than it is in, in Singapore. It is. But, but the low-hanging fruit is probably Australia. So if you're, if you're looking at short-term bookings, Australia is going to be easy, especially for your product, right? Marketing departments, digital marketing. The Australians will just, just, just gobble stuff up, just, just like the Americans and the Europeans. Yeah, that's what we found as well. And you can also go a long way there without actually having physical data centers there or hosting products there. And you don't have to do any of the translation, as Teen said up front, because they're all speaking the same language. And I think that makes it a lot easier. It is a smaller market. I mean, it's a capped market, but... You know, there is enterprise there. There is big mid-market there. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of enterprise software as a service uh, that, have, that have done the avant-garde work to open up that market for you. It's going to be very receptive, I agree. Now, I will say, right, in, in, in the current environment, my guess is that cross-border travel is going to be limited for 24 months. And so I think you got to think about what that means, right? So you, you've got to build, I, I think... If you go back to the 90s, the way Oracle ran was uh, the different countries were their own fiefdom. And I don't know if we're going to go back that extreme, but the last 20 years has been more centralized, single global company. But I think the pendulum is going to swing more towards regional, regional authority. And how does that impact the way you think about your own business? Well, so, so this is oversimplification, but the, the way you swing that is, is you need to have higher level metrics push down to a local leader that operates more like a GM, 
right? And give them the freedom to make their choices. And GM being so you, general manager, in other words, somebody who's running manager, their own yeah. show. Yeah, you give them, uh, you know, again, the devil's in the details, right? But, but at a high level, you give them their own P&L. You say, these are the things, you know, like we care about customer sat, we care about, about profit loss, we care about bookings. Um, uh, we care about margins, whatever margin structure, right, that, that, that you have. And, uh, and these are the rules that we want all of us to follow. But within those rules, you've got a lot more local autonomy. It might mean, for example, that you need to put a finance person in the remote region because they need that. They need that in order to have a local autonomy. I want to thank both of you, Jeremy and Teen, for joining us. It was a really insightful, really practical conversation. And, and in fact, it's the best that I could hope for on this podcast, which is looking to be really kind of boots on the ground. What should we be thinking about? What should we be doing? So I want to thank both of you. This is great. This is fun. Pleasure, guys. And I, I echo that. Jeremy, Teen, thanks a lot for taking time out of your busy schedules. We greatly appreciate it. Super valuable. I enjoyed it, but I think it's also going to be super valuable for everyone listening out there, uh, walking away with some very good uh, tactics and strategy on uh, different approaches. So thank you very much. Freddie, I think that was probably one of the most classic uh, Zero to IPO episodes we've ever had. Yeah, I agree. That was amazing. One of the things that I took away from it was we are in the midst of the pandemic, of course, and hearing both Jeremy and Teen talk about building a company, starting a company even in the midst of difficult times, whether it's now or or the 08 crisis or the dot-com crisis, those are the times that the next generation of great companies are really built. Another thing that struck me that I thought was very wise uh, on Teen's behalf was when he talked about bringing the outside world into the engineering team. If you're the CEO uh, who's not necessarily an engineer uh, but uh, has more of a sales focus, you can be that person who translates the outside world and says, look, this is how people are reacting to your product. This is how it's succeeding. This is how it's failing. Uh, and give them that perspective outside of their desk. What are some of the other takeaways for you from the wide-ranging conversation? Well, I think uh, obviously the one about expansion. How do you expand internationally? I think you heard a number of different strategies. Uh, Jeremy found a very good way to do it by uh, purchasing, acquiring a company that was already international and embedding that culturally. He talked about those challenges. On the other hand, Teen had very specific arguments on how to do it. And obviously at Okta, we've done a lot of organic growth into those different territories and just being sensitive to the different cultural aspects of course, ensuring the French can go out to lunch and have a glass of wine. That is it for this episode of Zero to IPO. Please, if you liked what you heard, you can find us on Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you find your podcasts, and uh, we will see you on the next go-around. Thanks a lot for joining us. Look forward to speaking with you all again soon. 